I um, have a piece of paper and some crayons and a pencil for all the kids. And then anybody who is a kid at heart, and um, your assignment is to use that to draw a picture of heaven. Okay, that's the assignment. Now, if anybody wants to be doing that during the sermon, just raise your hand and our usher will come to you and, um, and give you that, those, uh, that equipment to, to do that drawing. Every day I walk out of my house and find later on in the day that I am incomplete. Sometimes I've neglected to put on earrings. Sometimes I've left part of my lunch behind. I look at myself in the mirror at night and that's when I notice I totally forgot on the makeup front that day. And the worst of course is when I'm tapping on my pockets and I have no phone, left my phone at home. So what I'm saying to you today, my beloved ABCers, is that you have a practically perfect pastor, a PPP. So here is a photo of me and my practically perfect family. A week ago, uh, all PPPs. And what that image doesn't show you is that I spilled on my blouse before I left the house. I thought I could get away with it. I asked the photographer, do you think this stain will show? And she said, oh. So that's my second blouse. Um, and once all that changed, you know, I really look. I'm a PPP right there. But the word practically is very important. What it means is almost but not quite. What it means is that I have missed the mark of perfection and I am off. Something is off. A PPP really means that you have an imperfect pastor. And little did I know that day that I was going to have to adjust my height by taking off my shoes. <laughs> of course, I noticed that hole in my socks when I put them on, but I'm like, who's going to know? I took off my shoes and I didn't even, you know, I didn't even notice it the second time until Lori started cracking up. She said, look at the hole in Pastor Connie's sock. And then they all took pictures of it. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I tell myself, you have got to pull it together. Anybody ever said this to you? Or have you said it to yourself? Well, I've been saying it for years of myself, and let's be honest, I've been saying it about all of you as well, to pull it together. Because we are the people who have not got it all together. We are off, we are off the mark of perfection. And this may discourage someone who actually thinks that they can hit that perfection mark that is not only attainable, but sustainable. And since I tend to c catch at least one mistake a day, I don't have that kind of pressure on me, but even for non-perfectionists who don't expect it, settling for what we have feels like a total defeat. Mm. The space between perfection and reality is where dreams die and goals crash and aspirations drown. It's a place of disappointment and defeat. It's frustrating, isn't it? Because we have a capacity to think big, to expect more, and then we run into a brick wall and we're forced to think, is this all? Is this everything? 
We're in a sermon series entitled Dimensions of Hope. And I want us to think about that chasm between perfection and reality as we read today's passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn re received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. Notice the if that is attached to salvation and the believing in vain. These are two words that throw a chill on the good news. If we hold on firmly to the gospel, we can be assured of our salvation unless we have come to believe in vain. Now Paul is gonna to go to the core of our faith as believers and then tackle the question of whether our belief is effective or whether it's empty. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. There's that word again, in vain. God's outlay of grace returns its investment back to God as Paul's life bears witness to that grace. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim and so you have come to believe. So this is the core belief without which we are not followers of Jesus. Now, we Christians disagree about a whole lot. We disagree on the amount of water needed for baptism. We disagree on how or by whom or how often the Lord's Supper should be taken. We disagree on really important social issues like abortion and homosexuality and racial justice and whether a woman should be in leadership. We disagree on politics. In fact, any Christian can find their complete polar opposite in another Christian in many and substantial areas that have a great impact on our practical uh, living of every day and have a great impact on the people around us. And we look at each other and we narrow our eyes and we think, is that even a Christian over there? How can that possibly be a Christian? They're not believing the right thing. They are incorrect in their reading of scripture. And these differences are a vital discussion that's going on in the American church today. The American church is having this discussion right now. We get to live for it, this time of change and of turmoil and of unsettledness. And it's a critically important discussion. It matters very much how the church comes out of these discussions. It matters how we live out the gospel. 
So it pains me to say this, but because I think that those topics are of great consequence, but none of those disagreements are the core of our faith. I would say they're core adjacent, but the very center belongs to Jesus Christ. And the succinct way that Paul writes it in this passage, and we know that these are not his words, this was a formula already that the church already professed, already formalized by the church. But the core of the gospel is this, Jesus Christ, Paul says, so there is no faith without Jesus, and that name encompasses who Jesus is. And let's remember that Christ is a shorthand for Messiah. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And there is the whole of salvation history in these four words. He was buried, and now this may say, sound redundant, like a rep repetition is he's saying he was really dead, so dead that they put him in the tomb. But it, but it becomes necessary for the fourth, fourth uh, phrase. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. So Jesus is no longer dead, but rather is living. To put it in the wrong order, the core of our faith is the resurrected Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's another way of saying it the other way around. This is the center of Christianity. And we can believe in all kinds of good things like the challenging, relationship-changing teachings of Jesus, which are wonderful. We can believe in the values of living a good, fruitful, moral life. We can believe that lo love conquers hate. We can believe that generosity, the giving away of ourselves, is key to our own purpose and fulfillment. We can believe all kinds of teaching and wisdom that is found in the Bible, but if we do not believe that the historical man Jesus the Messiah sent by God, died for our sins, but didn't stay dead, was resurrected instead, then we are not Christians. If we don't believe to the point of submitting our whole selves to Jesus, to follow him, then we are not Christians. That core, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection holds everything else together. So how strong is your belief? How much faith do you have? When I was a young adult, I was following Jesus hard and a Bible teacher put the question to us students, how strong is your faith? If someone found the bones of Jesus, would you still believe? Well, of course, duh. Like bones can't shake my faith. I didn't ask you to raise your hands on that question because he asked us. I raised my hand high, as did a whole bunch of other people, and I flunked with a capital F that trick question. If there are bones, the tomb wasn't empty, and then all of Christianity is a lie, our teacher told us. The truth of Christianity hinges on Jesus' resurrection, and without it, we have a failed teacher. Without a resurrection, we will have believed in vain, as Paul will now go on to show. So now we're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain 
and your faith has been in vain. Two more in vains, two troubling ones. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's another sobering word. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have died. Now there are some facts here that Paul is not arguing. He doesn't have to prove that Jesus was a real man who lived and died on a cross. He was living within a generation's time span of Jesus' death, and Jesus' life and death were well known. The Christians in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, accepted it as fact. And Paul was not even arguing that Jesus was raised from the dead. That fact also was very well known. There were still many living witnesses to the resurrection. No one in Corinth disputed Jesus', Jesus resurrection from the dead. And in fact, Paul writes those words, if Christ has not been read as a shock tactic to his readers, because they would read them, they would say, Paul has gone out of his mind. What is he talking about? If Christ has not, everybody knows Christ has been raised from the dead. Let me read on to see what he's talking about. So that was his tactic in that phrase. In that culture and in that time, the resurrection of certain very special, very important people was thoroughly accepted. What was not common was the belief in the resurrection of everyone. And that was disputed. And that would have been a minority opinion in the time that Paul was writing. So the facts of Jesus were not disputed, but many Christians in the Corinthian church believed that even though Jesus was resurrected, they themselves would not be resurrected when they died. This life was all they had. And this is what Paul is arguing against. Therefore, he says, if Jesus had never been raised, we've believed a lie. But without our own personal resurrection, the truth of Jesus' resurrection doesn't matter too much. We are sad, pitiful people if all we have is this earthly life. And this is where hope comes in, in verse 19. It says, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope has Jesus Christ at its center. We have seen this over and over again in the New Testament. Our hope has one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. And it topples if it must hop around only on one foot on earth. Hope in Christ is only secure if we one day will be raised to resurrection life just like he was. The two resurrections, his and ours, are fused together. Now some Corinthians were teaching that the believer can experience something like Jesus' resurrected life here on earth. That they'd already arrived at the fullness of the life of faith and the exceptional quality of life that they were experiencing mirrors Jesus' resurrection. 
Of course, these were only some Corinthians. Most of them knew they were off the mark of perfection. And of course, we as PPP, we know that that would not be true, that we are not living resurrection life right now. If we read the whole book of Corinthians, we'll see that the life and behavior of these super Christians didn't match up to Jesus. They used their status as a license to sin. Because what does sin matter if we don't have to answer for it beyond the grave? What we believe about the resurrection affects our behavior now. And if there's nothing past death, then we can indulge in whatever desires or passions we happen to have at the moment. Without eternal consequences, we can get up to a whole lot of sinning and get away with it. If there's nothing past death, then our work for the Lord, and I put that in quotes because it's never something that earns us a spot in heaven, but on the other hand, faith in Jesus, which is our access to God, always produces works for the Lord. But if there's nothing past death, then what, all we do for the Lord is futile. Paul led a life of hardship and sacrifice in following his Lord Jesus. He endured beatings, stonings, mob violence, hatred, imprisonment, and none of that would have been worth it without a hope in Christ beyond this earthly life. So Paul is very practical. There's no nobility in sacrifice, in doing good, in suffering. There's no nobility in any of that if there's no resurrection, personal resurrection. Believers would have been wasting their lives believing in fables, and worst of all, we would still be in our sins. On the other hand, our own personal resurrection gives meaning in the present to our brokenness and our suffering. God's resurrection power is big enough to break the grip of sin in our lives. Our personal resurrection demands that we enter into the struggle on behalf of the gospel. We're assured by God that hardships have meaning because we are going to survive the sting of death. We will be victorious over sin through Jesus and even over death, our last bitter enemy. So there are two options. Imagine that this life is all you have and then it's over, you're over. How depressing, how depressing for people for whom life is a struggle, for those who live with illness and those who live in poverty. How depressing for people who battle addiction, for those who battle sin. How depressing for people who have it all but still find that there's an emptiness within. How depressing for people who age, who face the losses and the indignities that come with age, the loss of independence, who know that the majority of their life is behind them. In other words, how depressing for all of us. The other option is that after death, we are raised to new life. So think, on the other hand, of what your own personal resurrection means. In this life, your personal resurrection gives hope. In the present, it gives meaning and purpose. Even when, or maybe especially when, things in this world don't make any sense. Right now, it gives us determination. It gives us joy in serving Jesus. 
to submit our desires to him, to know that he is the way and the truth and the life, the resurrection life. So I want to tell you a little bit about resurrection life. Heaven, we kind of call it. Now, has anybody finished their pictures and want to show us their pictures of heaven? Anybody? Okay, come on. Come on then. Or I should say Morgan's going to tell us all about what heaven is like. Come on. Tell us. Tell us your picture. Did I tell you you didn't have to get up here in the front? I might have, I might have, you know, not, no, come on. I might have not quite told everything the truth. Okay, tell us about your picture. Do you want to use that one? Turn it outward so we can see it. Um, because, I don't know, I just didn't want to color it. Um, then there's clouds around um, the edge of the page, and um, the, there's this light in the sky and birds coming from the light. Mm, I like that. Very good. You want to leave it right here, or do you want to keep on working on it? I'm done with it. Okay, leave it there, and people can come up and look at it afterwards. Okay, anybody else who has a picture, who wants to tell us about their pictures? Thank you, Morgan. Give her a hand. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you what I think about heaven. You've heard the joke about the monk who delighted in that great huge library in heaven. The minute he got to heaven, he buried himself in that library. He spent decades, centuries plumbing its de depths. But one day a great anguish cry came out of him as he poured over the original manuscripts for the Bible. And he cried so loud and so long that everybody who came running to see what was wrong, he kept saying, we missed the R, we missed the R, we missed the R. And they said, what are you talking about? It was supposed to be celebrate, not celibate. We missed the R. <laughs> Now, I've imagined there's a library in heaven because I love libraries, and I've imagined that heaven has animals. You had birds in there, Morgan. I'm so happy because God loves the little sparrows and delighted in his animal creations here on earth. And I've imagined that all of God's creation in heaven has to be multidimensionally better than on earth, and I've imagined colors that we can't even see here, and art, and music, and dance, and running, and sports with our resurrected bodies. And I've imagined heaven has chocolate growing on trees that doesn't make you fat. All the stuff I love, but only better. That's what I've imagined. And let me tell you now what I know about heaven. I know that we will be right with God and right with each other. And I know that it's a place of justice and peace. And anything that causes friction or hurt between us here on earth has no place in heaven. We will not be PPPs anymore. We will be PPs, perfect people, finally, completed, fulfilled. And that means that we will love each other and love God perfectly. And that is a transformational difference from life on earth 
to heaven that I find it really difficult to imagine how that's going to be. I know that God will wipe away our tears. I am gonna need a lot of wiping, everybody knows. I know there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain or death. And somehow, somehow the sufferings of our earthly life will be redeemed. I know that all our struggles here will not compare to the glory there. And I can't imagine that difference. I know that heaven is where God dwells with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That it will take our breath away. And I know that worship with God as the audience will be spine tingling. We worship here. We have moments in worship that lift us up. But if you have ever been bored in church, let me just tell you, that is not heaven. Because <laughs> worship is not boring. Worship in heaven is going to be exponentially different. And my imagination is not big enough for resurrection life. So no, I really don't know what heaven is going to be like. And the Bible gives us a few clues. I think it's an incomplete, incomplete picture because if we really know, we would lose our taste for life here on earth. We know just enough to hope in Christ, both in this world and beyond our earthly life. Mm -hmm. So I ask you today to put your hope in Christ if you haven't yet done that because Jesus died for your sin and he was raised again so that you may be raised again to resurrection life. And I know that you will want to experience resurrection life with him. Yes, Lord? Oh, okay. I'm just checking. I'm here, Lord, whatever you wanna say. We have had so much death in the past two years. Anyone who has loved a lost one knows about the finality of death as an enemy. That person is not coming back. Yesterday I listened to a voicemail which I have kept of a person who has passed away at least three years ago now. And just hearing his voice, it was about a nothing. Oh, I gotta run up to the church, can you give me this? That, I mean, it was nothing, it was a little errand voicemail, but I've kept it. And that was so sad to me, but it also just hearing that voice is um, meaningful. But he's not here. So are you ready for the final word on the matter from the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 54? When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, 
and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And there's the last time this word has been used in this chapter, but this time comes the conclusion, not in vain. So this is not all that there is. God will have the last word. God will not allow death to eclipse what we are or the loving that we've done. So get ready for resurrection life. Get to hoping, get to living, get to working for the Lord, get to loving. Let's bow our heads. Our God, in hope we believe, we believe that you have so much good for us. And no matter how practically perfect we are here on this earth, that we will reach our potential of what you designed us to be, that we will not fall short, that we will delight in you and you will delight in us. Thank you for this hope and thank you for Jesus who gives it to us. In his name we pray, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.